This is the Monday, January 4th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is The History Author Show on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker. If there's anywhere you can't find us, please do let us know and we'll see about them adding us. You can also tune us in on many new model car stereos where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like any other radio, right there in the dashboard. Of course, today, we're not driving a car, but a time machine. And we're going to log some serious miles all over this big blue marble. And our ticket is The Geography of Genius a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Our guest is Eric Weiner, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Geography of Bliss, as well as the critically acclaimed Man Seeks God. Eric is a former correspondent for National Public Radio and The New York Times, but you've seen his pieces just about everywhere fine writing is found. You can sleuth out more about Eric at Eric underscore Weiner on Twitter. That's Eric with a C or visit him at ericweinerbooks.com. That last name is W-E-I-N-E-R. Okay, now that we've mapped our itinerary across the seven seas, let's meet Eric Weiner and smarten up with The Geography of Genius. Wile E. Coyote, super genius. I like the way that rolls out. Wile E. Coyote, super genius. I'm on the line with Eric Weiner, author of The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show today. My pleasure, Dean. I'm happy to be here. I found this a really surprisingly untouched area of history because people have speculated before that maybe certain areas or cities produce great athletes or a lot of presidents. But the geography of genius is the first one that I'm aware of anyway that looks at this idea that there are sort of brain clusters and what the intellectual soil is there to produce or nurture these great minds. So how did this idea, this ingenious idea, hit you? Well, I agree with you. I think it's been overlooked. And I think part of the problem is specialization, you know, that historians specialize in one time period or one geographic area. And then you have psychologists who specialize in one aspect of human psychology. But, you know, you don't have the overlap. You never had anyone really looking and saying, well, wait a second, ancient Athens, Renaissance Florence, Silicon Valley, other places produced, you know, what I call genius clusters. And there's a psychology behind it and a sociology and I think that's one of the reasons it has really not been written about, at least not very much, is because it's interdisciplinary and no one really thought to connect the dots. 
I'm not saying I'm a genius. I make it pretty clear early on in the book that I'm not. <laughs> uh, but I tend to look at the world through the prism of place. I'm a placist, I guess you would say, if that's a word. I, I really believe in the power of place, whether it's, you know, place relating to happiness or spiritual fulfillment or, in this case, creative genius. And that's what I wanted to explore. I think people probably look at the geography of genius and say, why, did, why didn't I think of that even? Because it, we're all used to going to a place maybe and say, oh, I'm, I'm in Paris. I'm inspired. I feel the feelings of love. Or if I'm in Ireland, I feel inspired to have a pint or to write some poetry if I'm going past some of the graves there. And or yet, both. Both. You can have a pint <laughs> and write poetry in, in Ireland. Well, yeah, and it helps in France, too. I'm sure a little bit of uh, the vino there with the yes. love part of it. Yes. But I, I just think that because we just look at our minds, it's sort of hard to get outside of your mind. And you look at these geniuses and you say, well, I could never write what Mozart wrote and I could never invent, say, the microchip. So I think we don't look at this idea, as you say early on in the book, the geniuses are born myth has been supplanted by another myth, and that's that geniuses are made. So we sort of went from this idea that you're born a genius to well, if we get you straight from the maternity ward into pre-learning and start you on calculus, I guess maybe that you could be a genius. Break down the percentage that you found of perspiration versus inspiration. Uh, I mean, well, Thomas Edison famously said it was 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. You know, I don't want to deny those two myths have a germ of truth to them. Clearly, some natural ability plays a role. But as you said, for a while, that's what people thought, you know, was it. You were either born a genius or you weren't. And they would point to someone like Mozart, a supposed child prodigy, you know, playing and composing by seven or eight and say, aha, clearly he was born with something special. In the last few years, as you point out, you know, there's been a very popular theory popularized by the author Malcolm Gladwell, not invented by him, but popularized by him, called the 10,000-hour rule. The 10,000-hour rule essentially states that you need to practice for at least 10,000 hours over the course of 10 years to achieve mastery. Um, and it sort of just puts a number to the perspiration idea that it really takes a lot of hard work to achieve creative excellence, genius, whatever word you want to use. And again, hard work is a piece of the puzzle, but we sort of overlook this third element, which is that geniuses are grown in the soil. Why would it be that you had so many brilliant minds in ancient Athens or in Renaissance Florence or in Vienna of 1900 or Amsterdam of the mid-17th century? You know, we just think, oh, it was a coincidence or there was something happening with the genes that everyone was born a genius. But in fact, it points to the fact that creativity is contagious, that ideas spread like a virus, only in a good way. And also, there's another element here, which I think some people find counterintuitive and almost heretical in a way. And that is that a genius requires a verdict, a social verdict, right? Who's a genius? We have to all say uh, Mozart was a genius, Edison was a genius, Einstein was a genius. You cannot be a self-declared genius. I mean, you, Dean, could go into work on Monday and say, I'm a genius. I don't know how your bosses and colleagues <laughs> would take that, you know? There has to be a broader social verdict to declare that Dean is a genius. So there's something about these places where the jurors, if you will, the society at large, they were discerning audiences. They got it. You know, look at Vienna, late 18th, early 19th century, when you had the likes of Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven and Schubert. 
the Viennese were a discerning audience. They pushed people like Mozart. They appreciated his music. And they were able to separate a, a true genius like Mozart from it and also Rand. So, yeah, on a lot of levels, I think place matters. And that's what I tried to elucidate in my book. And you also say something about what you call the fashionista theory, which I think you're sort of yeah, alluding to there. Am, where yeah. You have to all agree that it is and it doesn't happen always in your lifetime. And that made me think of... Wiley Coyote is an example who was always telling us, of course, that he was a super genius. And I figured you could tell me if I apply this correctly, based on the fashionista theory of a sort of society declaring you a genius, he would not be a genius. Is that right? Correct. Wiley Coyote would not be a genius in his time. Later, we may declare him a genius. <laughs> um, Bach, Van Gogh are two examples of people who during their time were considered competent, but not genius level. Later, after they died, they were declared a genius. So people say, oh, they were an undiscovered genius. I, I think that's an oxymoron. I think there was no such thing as an undiscovered genius. Wiley Coyote is an undiscovered genius. At some point we may declare him a genius, then he becomes a genius. So I guess the point is that someone is a genius if we say they are. And to be honest, in, in talking about this theory, I find people kind of pull away from it. You know, they, they think, well, isn't there something just universal and eternal about a genius that is not dependent on the whims of society, on this fashionista theory? And I, I really don't think there is. Hopefully we get it right. Hopefully as a society, as a world you know, Mozart is a good musician, and that's why he's elected to the pantheon of genius. But if he was an undiscovered genius, he wouldn't be a genius. He would just be someone else who composed music in Vienna. And I think that people that look back and say undiscovered genius, it also makes them feel a little bit better about themselves or about ourselves. Or we could say, well, if Mozart was here now, of course, I would recognize him as a genius or Bach, I guess, was your example. But it's not the case. There are people here right now that we don't know that are toiling around us. But it's sort of an uncomfortable notion, I think, that we wouldn't recognize somebody of that intellectual magnitude. Right. Well, the, this, the time has to be right and the circumstances have to be ripe for genius. You know, Einstein's secretary famously once said, well, if, even if Einstein was living amid the polar bears, he would still be Einstein. And that's just not true, unless, you know, the, the polar bears had a really deep understanding of theoretical physics, you know, um, <laughs> that, and uh, this is not to take anything away from Einstein or from the polar bears, you know, but, yeah. but without this, the right conditions and a receptive audience in his field of physics and the world at large, you know, Einstein would not be Einstein. You know, about roughly 50 years before Einstein's major theories is the year 1905 when he came up with so many of them, you know, a famous American physicist declared that basically physics is done. We've worked it out. And he famously said, all that remains is to work out the decimal points. And, you know, if Einstein was coming of age as a physicist during that time, he probably wouldn't have been attracted to the field. You're not attracted to a field where you figure it, it, people tell you it's been all figured out. You're attracted to a field where there are discoveries to be made and you feel like your ideas will resonate. It reminds me a little bit of Winston Churchill's line that the empires of the future are the empires of the mind and going out and learning things and traveling, something that you obviously did in the geography of genius, 
someone that comes up in your book who's also a great physical explorer, of course, is Marco Polo. Right. And when you go to Hangzhou, China, in the Geography of Genius, you mentioned that today's system, the communist system, squelches the creativity, and it's different from what it was as a city when it so impressed Marco Polo. Explain a little bit about the differences between his day and your day as far as the thinking aspect of it. Well, the city of Hangzhou, China, um, which in the 12th, 13th century was was the biggest in the world. It had a population of well over a million, you know, compared to Marco Polo's hometown of Venice had a population of maybe 50,000. And Hangzhou was the most advanced city in the world um, in terms of science and medicine and art and everything. And, you know, I think like most people, I sort of had a vague idea that, oh, yeah, China invented fireworks and gunpowder and paper, which they did. But they invented a lot more than that, and uh, including the the compass and navigation. And this was a, a thriving city ruled by poet emperors, which is a great combination. I think <laughs> yeah, wow. maybe if we maybe we should have more poet politicians <laughs> in this country. And we'd be better off. Yeah. And Marco Polo was blown away, you know, in, in his uh, diary, Travels of Marco Polo, you know, he devotes many, many pages to Hangzhou and he's smitten by the place. And people back home in Italy, uh, in Venice, didn't believe him. They thought he was telling lies. They couldn't believe there was a place so spectacular. It, it was a place that was rich in creativity, especially in the arts and in science. And, you know, it was not a communist system, obviously, back then, but it was still Chinese society. It was Confucius values. In fact, there was a big return to Confucius values. So I I do sort of in this book straddle present and past because, you know, I don't have a time machine yet. So until I do, you have to imagine the past by being in the present. And there is a gap, obviously, between the creative juices that were flowing in old China and what's happening today. But I don't know if the gap's as big as people think it is. I think that China could regain the sort of innovation edge that it once had. I would think the ground would be more fertile, at least easier to tap now, especially even though the blocking of the internet and such things behind the great firewall, as they like to cutely call it, it seems like you'd be able to find more of the raw material, and yet people don't seek it out quite as much, which we'll touch on a little later. One of the ideas, though, that I wanted to float so to speak, that you float in the book is that booze helps. And as you were talking before about Edison, I thought maybe 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration, 5% vermouth is more of a balance there. So That's 105%, but okay, yeah. Sure. Well, hey, I'm no genius in math, but but if you need to have a drink there to be a genius, I'm willing to commit to that. So I wanted to know what I know because I read the book, but you want to share with people a little bit this idea. Yeah, there's been a few studies done. They find, you know, I guess college students willing to drink vodka and cranberry juice for money, you know, to, and study there. Must be hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's no shortage <laughs> of volunteers. And and these studies have looked at basically people's a certain kind of thinking skill called divergent thinking. Convergent thinking, the opposite, is when you find the one correct answer to a problem. You sort of take a lot of options and you narrow it down. Divergent thinking is when you basically, we would call it thinking outside the box. You are finding unexpected solutions to problems, creative in other words. And they found that after uh, drinking vodka cranberry juice enough to get just below the legal limit, these volunteers 
came up with more divergent thinking, more creative ideas and solutions and these sort of word problems that they give them as an exam. And in fact, the ideas were judged by an independent panel of presumably sober judges to be more creative, and they came up with more of these ideas. So there does seem to be something to that. You mentioned Churchill. Churchill basically considered Booz his muse and said he could not have written his epic biography. I think it was five or six parts, The World in Crisis, I believe it was called, without his favorite drink. Now, it worked for Churchill. It doesn't work for everybody. I think, actually, my personal theory is that the important role that alcohol plays in the creative process is not chemical, it's more social, right? And I have a chapter on Edinburgh and the Scottish Enlightenment in my book, and they they drank a lot. They actually drank more claret or red wine than they did scotch back then, but they drank a lot, and they did it very socially, and it was a very social place, Edinburgh of the 18th century. And I think, you know, in that sense, you know, alcohol brings people together to discuss ideas. And I think and this is just my theory that that may play a stronger role than drinking because, you know, you drink a little bit, you get more creative, you drink a lot and you, you fall down. And that's not yeah. good. That's not good. <laughs> and I'm not even going to consider the fact that the cranberry juice could have been the smart thing because I, I don't that's not a really good excuse to walk <laughs> around drinking cranberry juice. But there you go. Liquor and beer and wine and scotch. I mean, that's. They need, they need to do a control study where people drank cranberry juice and then <laughs> took the diversion thinking exam. Yeah. Little, they won't get as many volunteers for that, but I right, guess they right. would, uh, they'd have a reduced instance of kidney stones probably. But speaking of liquor there, I didn't mention Uzu. And of course, you write in the book that no ancient people are more alive today than the Greeks. I am alive and well, by the way. And that we're all a little bit Greek. Again, I'm a lot Greek. It struck me while reading the Geography of Genius, though, that there's something about this idea of genius than just factual knowledge. I was mentioning about today where there's so much information out there, but the idea of real knowledge and wisdom and genius, the ancient people had it. And yet, of course, they didn't have any, even the most basic, what we would consider scientific knowledge. It's a way of looking at the world and solving challenges. That's what you found when you were writing this almost as a how-to book about smarts. Yeah. I mean, I, I think today we view genius almost entirely through the realm of the prism of technology and science. And the Greeks, we admire the ancient Greeks, right? They brought us philosophy and democracy and theater and so much more. Or as I point out, they actually borrowed a lot of these ideas, but they certainly perfected them. Very little in the way of technological innovation. Plato, little known fact, invented the alarm clock, based on a water clock that used water to sort of tell time and would somehow wake you up. Other than that, very little in the way of science came out of ancient Greece and ancient Athens in particular. So innovation, you hear the word innovation, we just we think of Steve Jobs, right? And we think of the iPhone, we think of Silicon Valley, but it is much broader than that. And I think that's what, what Greece reminds us of. And it also reminds us and this is sort of a common theme throughout the book of the importance of an interdisciplinary approach to the world, looking at connecting dots. And, you know, I was at a dinner party not that long ago, and I was sort of, you know, bemoaning the specialization of our world. Our academia has carved everything up into such tiny slices. And the friend said, well, you know, of course we have more specialization today because the world is more complicated, more complex. And I would argue, in fact, that the world is more complicated today because we have specialization. 
that specialization, which was unknown to the Greeks, everybody did everything, actually reduces the amount of creative genius we have. If genius, as I believe, is about connecting the dots, you're not allowed to look at someone else's dots. If you're a, a physicist, don't get involved in art history. If you're an art historian, don't start talking about evolutionary biology. But in Athens and in Florence and a lot of these places, these boundaries did not exist. They seem to have sought a lot of other people out for their specialty if they wanted to go and talk to it. I, I always think in Flowers for Algernon, he becomes super smart, Charlie, and he goes and he realizes that people are just so specialized that nobody's really on this super level that he's on. And as you said before, that's one reason nobody considered looking at this before and, and writing on to this topic. I think so, yeah. And I think to get back to Athens for a second, everyone did everything. There was no professional priest class. You were a volunteer. There was no professional political class. You were elected for a certain period of time. People would go to battle and write poetry. Poets were warriors. Warriors were poets. And it's very rare today that we find people crossing these lines. And, you know, one person I quote and, and admire quite a lot in the book is a psychologist at University of California named Dean Simonton. And he makes a compelling case that we have seen the decline of genius in our age, that we don't see the kind of dramatic leaps that we've seen in centuries past. And I think he's absolutely right. I, I think that we have as I like to put it, we've raised the floor but lowered the ceiling. We have more talented people, but fewer true geniuses today than in centuries past. We're talking with Eric Weiner, and his book is The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. And you can follow him at Eric underscore Weiner on Twitter and visit him at ericweinerbooks.com. Walter Isaacson calls The Geography of Genius a charming mix of history and wisdom cloaked as a rollicking travelogue. What a lot of fun words that are in that. But I wanted to focus on a simple one, mix, because as anyone who's made a cake knows, it's a delicate balance. What's too much? What's too little? And I wanted to know how you measured all these ingredients, because this is a book of really large scope, global scope. You go to so many time periods and so many places. How did you measure all the humor and history and traveling together in the geography of genius? Well, I don't know if I measured it. People might say to me, well, where's the most creative place? Was Florence more creative than Athens? That's hard to say. But just to riff off of this idea of a cake and a recipe or a pina colada, which makes an appearance in the Florence chapter of the book, mm. you need certain ingredients to make a pina colada. But you need to get, and I know rum is one of them. What are the other ingredients? Do you know? Uh, coconut something? Yeah, okay. <laughs> coconut, coconut milk. something, some milk and rum. Um, obviously, we're not pina colada yeah. drinkers. <laughs> you, you need certain ingredients, but you need them in the right proportions or it's not going to be a pina colada. It, it, it would actually be another drink and possibly not something you would want to imbibe if you did not get the proportions right. So when we look at these places and people want to know what's the formula, what's the recipe for these genius clusters, as they call them, and you, you need certain things like, you know, free flow of information and a sort of combination of intrinsic and extrinsic rewards. People need to be rewarded for their creative work. And you need a certain amount of tension. You know, that's one of the least understood ingredients, but you need a some sort of internal conflict going on. And you need them all in the right proportions. I cannot give you a precise, you know, 37.2% of this and 27% coconut and whatever, but... 
these places of genius seem to have gotten the recipe right. They got the balance right, which is hugely important. And I looked it up here since we were talking about how to get your genius inspiration. Three parts pineapple juice, one part white rum, and one part of coconut cream for a pina colada. Right. Now imagine you got those all mixed up and replaced (laughs) everything. It would taste awful. So people want to know, they'll often say, well, what, what are the... What are the ingredients for a happy place or for a place of genius? And But they don't think as much about the proportions. They just think, what do we need? And throw it all in there. But if you get the proportions wrong, you've got, you get everything wrong. It strikes me that that's sort of the difference that you talked about in our modern life. We just want to know it. We just want to have the recipe or we just want to have the answer or we want to be able to go to a calculator and get the solution to a complex math problem. But People who were thinking the unexamined life, as Socrates said, not being worth living, that was really part of it. And that's why a place like Florence, where people were inspired to do this, and as you said, incentivized to do it, were going far in the empires of the mind because they were seeking to think. That was sort of the journey, as you maybe found in this book, was sort of the end in itself. That was the goal. Florence, by the way, your chapter is titled Genius is Expensive. And that's another motivation, of course, if you're going to be funded to go and learn something and solve something. I mean, I don't think Einstein, of course, he wasn't going to get paid for some of these theories and patents and whatnot. But people did get patrons in a place like ancient Florence. So talk a little bit about that. How did that draw sort of these best and brightest to Florence? So you had the city of Florence that, you know, in the 14th, 15th century was just not, if you were a gambling person, you were to say, okay, where's the next place of genius going to be? You would have not have chosen Florence. There were all these Italian city-states. There were others that were bigger, that were wealthier. Here you had this place that had no port. It had a river, but it was not on a, a sea or an ocean. It had just been walloped by the plague, the Black Death, as it was called, Um, It had no natural resources to speak of, but it had these ingenious people, this one family in particular, the Medicis, who decided they were going to get into the cloth trade, which made no sense. They had no natural ingredients there. They had to go far and wide to find the the different parts to, to make this industry, and as far as Afghanistan, for the pigment. And they did it, and they built the cloth trade, which led to banking. And, you know, there was a a physicist named Lord Rutherford who once famously proclaimed, we have no money, so we will have to think. And that's what the Florentines did. They had no money, so they had to think. And then the Medicis, who you've probably heard of, became the most famous patrons perhaps of all time. And they were loaded. They were really wealthy. But they also had taste and they had discernment and they knew how to, Today, we would call it pick winners or talent scouting, whatever term you want to use. They were very good at spotting talent. And Lorenzo Medici, known as Lorenzo the Magnificent, kind of a grandiose title, but he actually lived up to it. Now, one day he is outside of his gardens and palatial grounds in Florence, and he spots this 14-year-old stonecutter who seems to have talent. He's chipping away at a statue of a fawn, which is sort of this Roman deity that he's recreating. And And Lorenzo says, wow, that's pretty good, kid. And he decides to back him, brings him actually into his household and gives him all the best teachers in the land and all the money he needs to pursue his craft. And today that kid is better known as Michelangelo. Now, would Michelangelo have become Michelangelo if it were not for Lorenzo Medici spotting him and nurturing his talent? I don't know. And I don't want to take anything away from Michelangelo because he was a genius. 
but that genius needed to be watered, and the Medici's did the watering. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Maybe he would have just been the greatest fawn maker. And there's plenty of sculptures and pottery you find in the ancient world, especially ancient Greek. Uh, they will have signed it there, but it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And how frustrating is it to say, we don't know who the artist is or by an unknown artist. You you look to sort of try to get that connection, or at least I do when you're in a museum and say, who painted this beautiful painting? And it'll just say unknown. Now, if somebody had gone and picked them out there at the side of the road, that might have helped to foster it. We might all know their name today. So that's sort of what you right. mean. There's the famous African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a city to raise a genius. I mean, it is a collective enterprise. Part of it is the money and the support, but part of it, a lot of it, I think, is appreciation. And, and we don't, we don't think, we don't appreciate appreciation. Let's put it that way. You know, we think, well, there's the genius and then there's the rest of us. And we're, we're like just passive recipients of their genius. Yeah. But the people of Florence, had to, they had to get Michelangelo and Leonardo and the rest. They had to get it. They had to appreciate it and raise it to the level of genius that, that made it something that's lasted through the ages. And sometimes people are jealous, of course, and they don't, or there's just one genius in town, which sort of brings me to my next question. I wanted to ask how you whittled the list down. Were there cities mm -hmm. where maybe they didn't reach this critical mass of having a genius cluster? There were just a few and you left them out of the book. I mean, that's that was really hard. And I think every author is filled with a little bit of regret, perhaps, when the book is finished. Oh, why didn't I go there? Or why did I do that? Um, I would say more there were places I, I wish I had the time and money and pages to, to go to. Um, I had wanted to go to somewhere in the Muslim world because there was a Muslim golden age, an Arab golden age also, that stretched for many centuries. It was very geographically diffuse, though. And a lot of the places, though, like Damascus and Baghdad are really, to be honest, not that safe to visit today. And... I didn't want my obituary to read, author dies while researching book on genius. <laughs> Just sounds dumb, right? So uh, I was not able to do that. It toyed with going to Paris in the 1920s. Certainly there were a lot of expatriate geniuses like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein and others there. I felt that was a bit familiar. Woody Allen's movie uh, Midnight in Paris had just come out at the time, and that felt a little familiar. So I was looking for places that were either rose to such a level that they demanded to be written about, such as Athens and Florence, or were perhaps lesser known, such as Hangzhou, China, or Calcutta, India, places that experienced a golden age that readers may not be so familiar with, but also that said something different about genius. I mean, I realized I couldn't cover the whole, you know, there have been lots of genius clusters throughout history. If I wrote about each and every one of them, it would be a 2000 page book and our conversation would be 10 hours long and <laughs> it would be problematic. So I tried to find emblematic places that said something different about the creative process. You know, in Calcutta, for instance, it's the idea of randomness and chance and, and chaos, really, and, and the role that chaos plays in the creative process. So it was a unscientific approach to coming up with these genius clusters. Yes. I wanted to mention Calcutta because of that chaos and because 
Now, for instance, when my wife comes in and says, your office is just such a mess, I can say, well, I have an actual book here that has genius in the title that says sort of the theory of a neat desk being the sign of a sick mind. And it goes back to what you said about maybe liquor's role in it or alcohol, that it's social, things are moving, you're bumping and running into other people. And there's also not you being jammed into this sort of round peg, and that's where you're going to stay for 30 years. I I didn't think of Calcutta, honestly, or Edinburgh until I read the book that that would have been a place where you would go to find minds being nurtured at any point in history. So that's a great part of the book. It's not just another trip sort of to Florence to marvel at these geniuses. It's about the real ideas that promote these people. And another thing you mentioned in the book, by the time you reach Silicon Valley late in the geography of genius, you're sort of carrying around this Santa sack of certified geniuses with you. And you bristle a little bit at hearing Steve Jobs referred to as one or, of course, everybody behind the Apple desk there as one, not to just pick on Apple. But there really is this idea that everybody's a genius. We call people geniuses for doing relatively simple things that don't really rise to that level. You think we cast that term around a little too casually nowadays? I, I think we do. You know, you Google genius and you'll hear about football geniuses and baseball geniuses, musical genius. Okay. The thing is, though, the thing about genius is the way, in its purest sense, the word transcends any particular field. You know, we would not refer to Mozart really as a musical genius. We would just say he's a genius. And you don't hear Einstein described too often as a scientific genius. We just say he was a, a genius, period. So the genius transcends their particular field. But now we have all kinds of modifiers to genius. And Steve Jobs, you mentioned, is a good example. It's as sort of a litmus test for where we stand on genius today. I would at cocktail parties or wherever ask people, do you think Steve Jobs was a genius? And the answers are very telling. Well, I'll put you on the spot now and ask you, do you think Steve Jobs was a genius? Hmm. Well, having read the book now, no, (laughs) honestly, because I think it's something about transcending, as you were just saying, all things, because he did a great job. He did a great product and he did wonderful things. But I think he was more a motivator, maybe, than a genius. I don't know. What do you think? You're the genius. Well, I mean, I think actually you would have to say yes, because if you believed in the fashionista theory of genius, you know, a lot of people today think he is and that or was. And that that says a lot about us, you know, that this is what we admire. We admire technology. We admire, you know, what he did. Now, that when you apply for a U.S. patent, there are three terms you must meet, new criteria. It must be something new, it must be something useful, and it must be something surprising. And it's that third element of surprising, that idea of a leap that I, I think, frankly, maybe Steve Jobs fell a bit short on. He, did, he didn't exactly invent something new. He never invented the MP3 player or the cell phone. Those were invented elsewhere, actually outside of Silicon Valley. But he put things together. He did connect the dots. And, you know, it just says a lot about us that that's how we think about genius today. It's not an idea that changes the world. It's a device that changes the world and changes it in ways that people may not consider positive. But if you were to look at where are the genius clusters today, most people would point to Silicon Valley. Now, does Silicon Valley rise to the level of a Florence or an Athens? The verdict is still out. I I personally would think probably not because it's not as interdisciplinary. It's basically one industry. It's hitting one note in different keys, but essentially one note. 
You don't see a, a lot of art or a lot of theater or a lot of theoretical physics, for that matter, coming out of Silicon Valley. Well, when I read Walter Isaacson's book, I mentioned his praise for the geography of genius. I will mm-hmm. revisit my evaluation of Steve Jobs. There's I, no, there's no right or wrong <laughs> answer about whether he was a genius. It just, it just, the answer says a lot about what we think genius is. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think because it's somebody that's in our time, maybe that's hard for yeah. people to recognize, or maybe the things that he did. I just think that when you look at individual people, that's something we don't really do now. I think we all sort of question. I don't know. We all we all just sort of agree and run. And it's hard because he also was sort of a celebrity and because he's passed away. I think it's it's be interesting to discuss how that all goes into it. But I don't want to spend too much of your time dwelling on individual genii. So you state. For instance, in the geography of genius that you can't rush genius, so I I don't want to rush you, but you have only so much time. I don't want you to have to rush out of here. But I have one final question, and it's about a quote you include from Plato. What is honored in a country will be cultivated there. And throughout the interview here, you've talked a little bit about that, about a few of our modern nations and places honoring brains, honoring the search for knowledge, real wisdom and real genius, nurturing it. So how can listeners and the readers of the geography of genius sort of nurture the geniuses in our midst today that we see there on the side of the road, chiseling the fawn or whatever they're doing in our modern world? Ooh, that's a good question because, you know, we have control over our own minds, we think. So if you're taught, if a book tells you to think more creatively, you can sit in your study or in your living room and think more creatively, but how do we affect society? I think we can. We may not be able to do it on the big grand scale. You're not going to affect all of the United States, but you can affect your community. If you have a local library, as we do here in Silver Spring, Maryland, you can get involved. I was never the kind of person who got involved before. I was a quintessential journalist and writer who would only observe, but um, we built a new beautiful library here and I decided to get involved and to start a regular literary series of author readings and events like that, something I never did before, but it's been knock wood so far a success. And I think that is some very small, it's a very small example of honoring something, honoring literature and the written word and bringing it to fruition, not just on a personal level, not just me writing poetry, but on a social level saying, hey, let's get together once a month, bring in a good writer and have a discussion. That's one example. Another example would be on the family level. Family is a culture, just on a very small scale. So we can affect our spouse and our child especially and create an environment. That is, in fact, what I've tried to do in my home. I'm not saying it's a little Renaissance Florence in the house. Um, It's more Calcutta-like at some times and chaotic, uh, but in a good way. But we can do things to replicate these places of genius on a small scale in our communities and at home, I think. Well, Poet Emperor Eric Weiner, I'm hoping that that (laughs) title catches on for you. Thank you so much for taking us on this journey in search of geniuses and helping us find the people that are in our midst right now that maybe could use a little brain boost. It's really a serious topic, as much fun as you have with it in the book, as much fun as we've had today. So I hope people feel a little bit smarter and go mix a drink now and order your book <laughs> there and enjoy it and start yeah, thinking go. about thinking. I find my book is best enjoyed with a pina colada. <laughs> well, so. we'll find out. We have the recipe now. <laughs> okay, we do. This, this has been a lot of fun, Dean. Thank you. Thank you.
The book we've enjoyed today is The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase the novel at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com buys a subpoena colada every time you do. Well, not really. We just get a few cents, a little percentage from every purchase you make. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. In fact, if you want to bookmark our Amazon link from HistoryAuthor.com for all your online purchases, we'd sure appreciate it. It's a great way to support the show and ensure that our pina colada bill doesn't get too out of hand. Once again, thanks to Eric Weiner for joining me and for sharing his thoughts on the history of thinking. For more, you can follow him at Eric underscore Weiner on Twitter or visit him at EricWeinerBooks.com. And remember, let us know what you think of the geography of genius and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. I hope you'll do the smart thing and join us next week for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening. And happy reading. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Wiley Coyote. Super genius. <laughs> <laughs>